From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 127 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan. Uh, wandering, uh, well, R- Ryan's wandering the earth. Dave and I are at home. Yeah, exactly. Right, Ryan's wandering. Around. Right now, I'm wandering a very small postage stamp size corner of the earth, and the sunshine is spectacular, and the weather is fantastic, and I, I will try very hard not to rub in the fact that Maui, Hawaii, is a very good place to do a podcast from. It doesn't suck. No, it doesn't suck. So. We're, well, all, we're, all, we're all slightly jealous of you in your Hawaii uh, remote work situation. And, exactly. and, and you know, we all, we all discussed, I think, what was it, a, a year and a half ago when I was making major upgrades to my home office so that I could be very productive and professional in the remote working world. I, I've decided to extend that experiment to all the corners of the earth. We can work from anywhere, but can you be a professional? I hope that so far it's actually working. Hey, you only have to wear a shirt long enough to finish the, the, the webinar, and then you're good to go. I enjoyed, I have to say, uh, I enjoyed the days when I was working from London and from a beach in Thailand and, you know, from Australia. Dave and I did a podcast in Australia, so, you know. Yeah, it's true. Those days shall return. It's just a matter of time. Exactly. We are, we are all eagerly awaiting when we can go back, and in the meantime, we are all connected and uh, might as well be in the room down the hall because broadband. Exactly. And you got real broadband, like you got it installed, so you're good to go. I did. Even on the island, we we have very good, uh, high-quality broadband. But I will also give a little brand endorsement here, the the Grand Wailea Hotel. They they were the beta site here on the island for deploying 5G ultra-wideband. So what I can tell you is, from personal experience, if you take your 5G-enabled handset and you go sit on the beach in front of the resort, you will get a gig and a half of download speed. And uh, it, it would almost be bad customer service, in my opinion, to not do a podcast from there because my all the listeners are going to get much better voice quality out of my stuff if I do it on that high-quality network. So. You have to be on this one patch of beach, only in this one area. If you hold your hand up at the right angle (laughs) so that your phone can see the tower. Yeah, not so much with the ultra-wideband. Ultra-narrow band. Pat the turtle on the head with the other hand. Exactly. Like, great idea, not so good in implementation. Great idea. Could we put the 5G where the people are? This podcast is sponsored by the Small Biz Thoughts Technology Community. Check us out at smallbizthoughts.org. Forums, templates, and checklists are just the start. Our community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in all available formats, plus free training, members-only programs, and the best business training available to managed service providers anywhere. Plus, we have weekly live members-only Zoom calls, The average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. We are totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. 
Join us today at smallbizthoughts.org. Excellent. So now we are going to transition into our three topics, the first of which we're going to talk about where I grew up in this world and what I still believe to be the world's sexiest part of the technology industry. Yes, I'm talking about storage because you guys know that's what I get excited about. Actually, what we're talking about is the crossroads between the conversation about storage and ransomware. And the, the article that we're gonna to link to here, I think gives a very practical explanation of not a new technology, but a new form of packaging and distributing air-gapped storage technologies that allow us to actually create a totally trusted version of storage and then put it someplace where you and I and anybody unauthorized cannot access it or overwrite that data. Now, the reason that this is now timely and topical is not that this is new storage technology. The reason that I think it's exciting is that it gives us a fail-safe in the ransomware conversation. Now, the problem with any of these technologies, any online vaulted version of your storage that is encrypted, that is protected, that absolutely positively cannot be ruined by the bad guys, is that it's always been a pain in the butt to restore from that version of your right. storage. But now, there might actually be a version that makes the restoring process easy. Well, what do you guys think about this new slash not new version of technology in the ransomware fight? Well, I've always loved storage. It's, you know, it's one of my first books, actually. I wrote a, a book on the SAN primer for SMB. But, you know, the, the thing with the storage, I was going to say, is that storage is awesome and easy, uh, but restoring, especially images, is extremely time consuming. I don't know that they've necessarily reduced the time much with this system that's mentioned in the article, um, but the idea that we have security and that we can actually say, when you put stuff up here, it cannot be changed, I think that is invaluable. I mean, there, there'll be no question that that's what people want. And we all know the price will come down because that's what prices do in technology. What's, what's old is new again. I mean, it was. It, I was really struck by the, this idea that there are certain basic tenets that I think oftentimes we wander too far from. It, it's that, that oftentimes we get all excited by the new thing, but there is a reason you have certain things. There's a reason we put air-gapped storage into place originally. We'd anticipated data corruption or user corruption or some of the other bits. Well, ransomware, in a way, is just another version of user corruption. It's way more malicious and evil. Right. But I'm just observing, like, the core problem is exactly the same one, right? A user might screw something up unintentionally or a user might screw something up intentionally. You still have a user screwed something up. You're still protecting against the same idea. It's why, like, I like to look at this thing and say, like, first off, I'm excited by this idea. I think it's really interesting. But more importantly, there's, there's a reason to not stray too much from core principles. You want to understand the why of why we do something. Why was stuff air-gapped? To protect against users. We didn't qualify whether those were good users or bad users. We just said it was against users. And so understanding the why and carrying that forward for these core principles is a really great lesson from this. Well, and sometimes I think we, we in technology get so enamored of the newest, fastest, most high-tech thing. And, you know, 
every once in a while I see some comment on Reddit or something where somebody will say, Carl's so old school, you know, he, he hand carries his backups to storage. And it's like, well, yeah, if my air gap, you know, backup system is in the house that burns down, it's still gone, right? <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we have to look at this stuff and realize the largest buyer of tape backup in the world is Amazon. And there's a reason for that. The ultimate backup. Now, it might take you a hundred years to restore, <laughs> but the ultimate backup is actually something that is air gapped and taken off site. See, and, and this is a modern version of that technology. I have spent many an hour in the early days of my career carrying tape cartridges around, learning the protocols for how you treat the physical media and reload it into the system. It is, it is a skill that I think is probably much more rare than it used to be, obviously, as all the people who knew how to do tape media have retired in the industry. But that means it's a valuable skill. Now, this is, this is new. This is modern. It's online. Uh, the problem with air gap storage, right, as somebody who grew up uh, marketing and selling that stuff, people always had two fundamental objections. Number one, it will be difficult and time consuming to restore from physically separate media. And I do believe in an automated Internet connected world, we can find ways to accelerate that and mitigate that problem. The second problem that everybody always said was, oh, so you're going to have more than one copy of all of your data. You're going to have timestamp versions and that's going to proliferate. And what was one terabyte now becomes two terabytes, now becomes three terabytes because you're not deduping and replacing and automatically overwriting the data. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly the point. The fact that it can't be overwritten is why it is stable and secure. And that will double the amount of storage consumption. But to Carl's point, Storage ain't exactly expensive by volume these days, right? The cost per gig has come down radically. But if you're a person who sells storage volume as part of your service offering, consuming more of it in order to enhance the security of your customers means you get to charge more for your services. That's not a bad thing, guys. That's a good thing. That's called well, let me, commerce. Let me layer on top of that. Uh, so this price of storage goes down, right? The price of ransomwares goes up. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I'm just taking a quick measurement here and say like, huh, holding on a storage and maybe that getting, you know, that price, yes, I'm spending more, but that price is coming down, but the value of my data is going up and the ransoms on top of it are also going up. I know how I'm going to spend my money. Well, plus, I mean, to, to, you know, the, the question of cost, try to find a hard drive smaller than three terabytes and, and you'll, you'll be looking in the closeout section at Staples, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I used to say, oh, I, I only need one terabyte. I don't really want all that extra space. Now it's like, sorry, dude, you know, you're getting four and you're going to like it. See, and, and that's the thing, right? I will, I, I, and I will bring us back around to essential best practices, right? Uh, and Carl, you've done a very good job of documenting this as one of the nine pillars of a professional industry, right? Uh, we should not just be doing some managed services stuff, and we shouldn't just be trying hard in cybersecurity. We begin with the fundamentals, of which one of those very, very first steps is run a backup on a regular schedule and test the restore 
of that backup. Thank you very much. If you guys aren't doing that, please read the article, take a look. It's not hard. It's not expensive. And, and it gives you a much more responsible professional story to tell to your customers. Yes. Well, I'm the other thing is sometimes people will say, but that's just hard. You know, that's difficult. And all I can think of is, and that's why you're getting paid $150 an hour exactly. and not just for 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what the money's for. Right. I like hard problems. They make me money. <laughs> well, speaking of hard problems, I want to pivot us to, on our second topic, to talk a little bit about shadow IT. Now, our friend Jay McBain at Forrester loves talking about shadow IT. Uh, I was reading, I, I subscribed to several enterprise uh, newsletters to try and get a sense of what trends they're talking about to see how they relate, particularly to those who are in the, the SMB or mid-market space. And of course, you know, this this article that, that we're linking to talks about how CIOs are no longer really the gatekeepers for revenue, and that's been distributed out. And then in some cases, CIOs are embracing this concept of shadow IT, and in fact, just creating structures for people to be able to take those funds and deploy them into their organizations to allow people to be empowered and enabled to deploy IT, but also do it in a way that is somewhat governed so that they get exposure into it. I was intrigued by this article, first off, because I recognize that shadow IT is a thing, right? And in particular, it is a thing for enterprise orgs that have a very top-down control mechanism to this. The question I kind of wanted to start our debate a little bit was is, Jay talks about shadow all, IT all the time. How much do we really think shadow IT is relevant the smaller you get? Because my first reaction was, that's just called IT at the smaller group because people just buy things, deploy it, and that natural chaos has always been SMB. What say you? <laughs> well, so let me give a little perspective. Having worked at uh, Hewlett Packard, you know, the Roseville plant in California, they had a thing called the COE, Common Operating Environment. And so, you know, I, I like to remind myself, my first uh, certification was Windows 3.1 because 3.11 for work groups had not yet been approved in the Common Operating Environment. So you literally could not legitimately install a newer version of Windows at the time. It, when Windows 3.5 was the thing, you couldn't install 4.0 under any circumstances, uh, if you wanted uh, support, and, and we were doing the support. <laughs> so, right. you know, we, we literally could not install what we knew to be a better program. So in that environment, so-called shadow makes sense. A, a, somebody who is going to reach out and invite somebody in to give them support and to have basically an unsupportable uh, addition to the environment. But also look at HP from their perspective, that causes massive disruption inside their own company. And they would rather lose money in the short term to be able to have stability and security in the long term, waiting to approve the appropriate thing, right? So that's kind of the big, big picture. That's the actual world where shadow exists. To Dave's point, you know, go down to a company that's got 130 employees, they've got somebody inside who does tech support, that person hires Dave because 
They've hit a wall where they can't fix a problem and there's nothing shadow about it. You're the outsourced IT person who's been brought into a small business because they can't do it themselves. And so it's it's almost like they're two completely different worlds with two different views about sourced IT. Well, and, and I think that they are also two completely different views of the purpose of IT, right? Uh, the hint in this article and the, the, the assumption the CIO has always operated on is that technology exists to make our jobs more efficient or more productive, where the business users tend to look at technology as a way to change, extend, and enhance our basic business capabilities, right? It's not just help me do the job that I already do a little bit more efficiently. It is give me capabilities that fundamentally do not presently exist in my business, whether that is marketing automation for the marketing team, CRM for the sales organization, data analytics for the, the drilling protocol uh, prioritization office at an oil company, right? Technology in the eyes of the CIO has always been Let's stabilize what we do, let's standardize the format, and let's require compliance to an established standard, where the business people have always looked at IT as, I can't currently do that thing. There's a tool out there, an application, a new way of technology that will allow me to do things I've never been able to do before, which by definition violates the current standard and definition of my accepted format and protocol. This is not a new way of doing IT. This is just a change of who controls the purse strings in the buying process, right? Now, in the article that we're referencing, they begin by making a reference to Oracle and SAP. After I was in the world of storage, I spent a number of years in the world of selling Oracle out there in the SMB environment. I can vouch personally for the fact that it is not an accident that business application sellers are targeting on purpose decision makers outside of the IT department. In fact, there are entire industry standard methodologies that are written for the purpose of finding the real business buyer, right? Uh, the one that we've been teaching a lot about lately is the concept of layer. Are you guys familiar with the uh, the idea? TSIA, the Technology Services Industry Association, years ago came up with a, a protocol of selling that they call land, adopt, expand, renew. You go out and find a user and get one person to download a copy of your stuff and begin to use it. Then you get to make sure they adopt and use it correctly and that they depend on it. Then you expand to more users and then you renew the contract. At no point in that protocol is the target audience defined as the IT department. It is defined as the functional user and you are here to make their job easier and help them create and deliver better business outcomes. This is the modern world and if the CIO is going to tilt against that windmill, the CIO is going to be the dinosaur in this conversation. Well, sure, but my, my Second point of that is, is, is so if, if we get small enough and we remove the CIO from the equation, that person doesn't exist, right? In a, <laughs> like we go down to a, to a sub 50, sub 30, mm -hmm. sub 20 customer, that role doesn't even happen, right? Like it's literally just the point where like that dispersion has happened because that doesn't even exist. I'm almost asking is like, is shadow IT even a, thing 
the smaller the org gets simply based on the way IT is implemented. Well, I think that that is true, but this is almost like a fractal. You know, you if there's a problem at the enterprise, but then you zoom in and you see a different version of the exact same problem, at, and then you zoom in some more, and right. you zoom in some more. Uh, I always, and I think you guys too, uh, encourage my staff to have a standard set of tools, right? You can't go to somebody's office and just download some random tool to fix a problem. We have a set of tools so that if I come in after you, I know that you did this and you and you did that, but you didn't do these other things. And we encourage, encourage our clients to do the same thing, right? There should be a place where we exchange files, not whichever Dropbox account or Azure account you just happen to have, or you emailed it to yourself on a Gmail, like, no, that's not the way we do things. So we need the standardization. And so somebody who comes in at any level and says, oh, wait, wait, my cousin showed me how to do something different. <laughs> like that that becomes in some ways, it's sort of the, the small version of, of shadow IT. Well, and, and in a very practical sense, again, lessons that I have learned at the altar of Carl Polichuk in our industry, standard <laughs> operating procedures exist for a reason. And if the customer is small enough that they do not have that stuff internally on their own, well, that's why God created ma managed service providers, right? That's your job in the world is to impose that kind of a structure. And very many of our audience actually sell a line item in their services called VCIO, right? Virtual CIO. And they perform that function. My, my contention here, again, where I'm saying standard operating procedure is always going to be more reliable and more productive. You will get better buy-in from your clients if you are thinking and acting at the strategy level, not just at the tactics level. But if your strategy is focused on standardizing technology instead of empowering business, that's yesterday's industry and you are going to get left behind. I think shadow IT it should be the way of the world. You should not be targeting the IT department for new functionality. You should be going to the business users in every dispersed functional business process. And that will create chaos. And that's why you need to hire an MSP. Commercial over. <laughs> <laughs> but today's point, uh, if, the, if the client is 50 users, there's only one contact and you're gonna deal with them and you're not gonna be shadow at all. You're just gonna be outsourced IT. Right. And I think I think at some point the distinction becomes academic more than practical. And I think that's the that's where I'm getting at is, is that there's some element of like that's just kind of how organizations run the smaller they get. Well, but right. there will and be so thus, Carl to your point. To, to your point, Carl, there will be one decision maker that you interface with at that client, but there will be fifty people downloading applications off of the interweb, and that is where the chaos of shadow comes in. Yeah, that's just part of your job description. Control that stuff and get paid for doing it. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, uh, with that, let's move on to the final topic. So, I'm reminded this is this is a story about a very we're going to put a link in here a very large microchip. And I'm reminded of this old story about, uh, you know, going to Russia and the guy in Russia is bragging. We have the largest hotel in the world. We have the largest country in the world and we build the largest microchips in the world. Right. So those days are past. And now <laughs> skip ahead a bit. Here's a company actually bragging about putting together a series of microchips to create this one gargantuan microchip 
because it allows them to do massive amounts of processing needed for artificial intelligence. And when they when they make the comparisons, uh, Cerebros, I guess is how it's pronounced. Cerebros, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they, they, you know, before they put their thing together, you could, you know, hope to find a trillion connections in a modern microchip. Theirs is not a trillion, it is a hundred and twenty trillion connections. Uh, and they actually, they have a, a picture of their wafer scale engine <laughs> and it is way bigger than a uh, graphical processor unit. So anyway, it's just interesting that we know, right? When we think about this, my first response is that's just gonna shrink over time. But this is kind of the, we have to prove that we can do it so we can get to the next level of AI. Well, so I'll I'll make the quip, you know, besides the obvious size matters type quips you know the, the the other thing is 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 not everything needs to be its smallest form and you know there's an interesting sort of design thinking to this is that we always assume that smaller is always better uh screens for instance we've always determined are better bigger and often better bigger and cheaper right those are the two things that we're looking for on it so to think that everything always should shrink is not necessarily a lens that I'd want to apply to every uh, every thinking. Now, you know, saying like, oh, well, chips will get better when they get smaller. Well, here's an example where they get better when they get bigger, <laughs> right? And and so it's 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 worth remembering that you can apply this line of thinking again to other ideas, saying like, you don't have to necessarily assume that one adage fits everything. There are times where doing the opposite thing is the beneficial direction. Well, and, and well, we, this is we why have this mentality of Moore's law, right? That somehow it has to be the chip and so many chips per inch and, you know, da, 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 da. And so it has to get smaller. And this is like, eh, or not. Or not. Well, well, and see, this is why people like you and I do this for a living. Uh, this kind of technological experimentation and innovation is fascinating whether it is on the same path of everybody's currently accepted best practices or not. It is the simple experimentation that makes this fascinating. Now, it is a fundamental architectural question, right? Like those of you who understand the way that cores are created and the way that chips are designed, the way that GPUs and CPUs have been designed for decades, quite literally, is you take the silicon and you break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces so that you can connect among them and perform the functions of logic, right? There is an actual physical architecture to the virtual processing that's going on. What these guys are saying is, no, no. Don't take the silicon and break it down into many pieces. Leave it as one great big piece and let the silicon talk to itself. Now, when it comes to math, right, I, again, I, I don't sell supercomputers, but I follow that topic because I am absolutely fascinated by the computational capabilities that modern technology is producing. The numbers, like you were saying, the numbers are mind boggling and I think that's super cool and exciting. Later on as an industry, we'll figure out a practical use for this stuff. But when you say a modern GPU has 
dozens or maybe a hundred or so cores inside of it. And that's what gives it its massive parallel processing capability. This thing has 850,000 cores inside of a single interconnected functional unit. And that's where you get into the trillions of, of processing unit capabilities. I think this is absolutely fascinating. And it challenges the, the orthodoxy of smaller is always better. And uh, maybe more powerful is better, right? Maybe we're not designing to optimize for size. We're designing to optimize for capability. And in a world of artificial intelligence and all of that processing, I think it's going to take more horsepower, not smaller devices. So, so this might be an interesting evolution. Is in in the world of ai do you do you give it its first job is to make itself smaller <laughs> that's a very good logic question <laughs> how could you be smaller <laughs> how meta how meta or make your make yourself bigger <laughs> make yourself more powerful wait a second that's how the machines blacked out the sky and scorched the atmosphere right that seems really bad <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you know, what's interesting is when you think about, okay, if it's just a matter of distributing the, the, the processing to enough chips and whatever, I mean, it's been, I don't know, about 20 years since I remember hearing about the first virus that uh, captured all the free cycles at Berkeley in order to, you know, break through a security algorithm. Like, uh, you know, as long as you're not paying for the electricity, you can distribute things as widely as you want to the most inefficient processors, because all you want is, you go run this calculation, bring me the answer. You go run the calculation, bring me the answer, right? So uh, it, it's, uh, it's a matter of just looking at it from a different perspective. So what would you, how would you, with the last moment or two, how would you advise somebody to make this idea actionable? What would you, what would you want them to take away and do with this? I would say the important thing for, for the SMB consultant is to know that this entire world is about to explode and that the world of AI is going to be an opportunity that is not too far in the future to be able to say, all right, how do we use AI? How do I buy time on that machine? How do I figure out what problems can be solved with this? And with AI, it could be almost anything. What's interesting is we're entering an era where we sometimes can't solve small immediate problems until we, they become so big that we have a whole bunch of data, right? I can't fix your heart, but if I take all the data of all the people in the entire world, I can figure out what's going on inside the human body, right? So problems have to be big enough and have enough data to be able to be able to figure out how we can fix it. See, and I will take this one step further, perhaps even more practical. Once and for all, managed service providers need to divorce themselves from the idea of pricing their services according to the number of devices they are managing, because this is one device that I promise is going to produce a little more overhead in administration and, and monitoring and data analysis than your average server, right? Do not price things based on the unit number, price them based on the function they perform and the value that that function produces for your end customer. It, there are still a lot of arguments to be had about how people go about pricing things, but I, I think we should be at a, a place once and for all, and this is a practical proof point, stop charging per device that you manage, start charging 
for the value of the business outcomes that you enable with technology. Or charge by weight. There you go. There you <laughs> go. Just, just weigh it. Let's just weigh it. We'll charge by weight. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. It's like the, the salad bar where you build your own and then they just weigh it. Exactly. The I'm just going to weigh it and then I'll charge people for it. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a great place. We'll leave you with those diet tips. And thank you for tuning in to episode 127 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.